Thank you guys for coming. Um, so I, I, we'll start with the story. Um, once upon a time, um, once upon a time, there's a, a, a Jewish beggar, and he has, uh, he has his friend who's a German, also a beggar. And this Jewish beggar and the German beggar are, uh, you know, they're wandering around the countryside and they're looking for alms and they're, uh, and they're, they're vagrants, vagabonds. And, um, and uh, the Jew says to the beggar, he's taught him his ways. He says, look, the Jews, my people are Rachmanim, Bnei Rachmanim, merciful people. And they'll take care of you. And, and he taught the German his ways of who to go to for tzedakah. Um, and it was Erev Pesach. And the Jew said to his friend, look, um, I want to teach you how to go ahead and to dress up like a Jew. Uh, maybe somebody will invite you to this thing that we call the Seder. And he told them what to expect a little bit at the Seder. And he said, it's going uh, to be an amazing thing. And dress up and you're going to go and, uh, and you'll be invited. After tefillah, somebody will invite you to the Seder. So the German uh, did as his Jewish friend said. And two beggars are waiting in the shul after davening. And, um, and of course, they're invited, respectively, to different sedarim. And German is uh, following the script, as his friend uh, told him. And he sees, they wash hands, and at the beginning, they go ahead, they give him a little bit of, like, a green leafy vegetable, maybe a potato dipped in salt water to whet his appetite. And German is, you know, waiting for... For this big meal that he's been promised. And all of a sudden, they start to go ahead and say the Haggadah over, and they're doing Maggid and everything. And he's like, um, he's like, okay, I get it. You know, I'll go along with this. Finally, they go and they bring out this flatbread. And they break the flatbread and they, and, uh, and they give it to him and he eats a little bit and he's, he's wondering, you know, what's going to happen. All of a sudden, they're bringing out the Mara and he's, he's losing his patience a little bit and he eats this Mara, this bitter vegetable. And he thinks that this is the meal. And he's had enough. He's had enough. He, 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 he jumps up and he leaves and he goes back to the rendezvous point that was established in the beginning. He goes back to the rendezvous point and he's waiting for his Jewish friend to come to tell him about how terrible, how terrible this meal was, how, how horrendous his experience was. What did his Jewish friend do to him? Uh, he's waiting in the Beit Midrash. Hours go by and, uh, and he falls asleep. And he's woken up by his Jewish friend who comes back. His belt is loosened, and you could tell he's, you know, stuffed himself as one does at the, at, at the Shulchan Aruch. And the German says, I'm so upset at you. Hey, you, you told me this would be the meal? You told me, how, how dare you? You know, this is after the entire ceremony. I waited away. They brought me this bitter herb. They brought me this, 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 this. Flatbread. Yeah, they brought me this flatbread, this bitter herb. I, what is it with you guys? That's what you call a meal. Jew looks at the German and says, Hoy, Germani Shota. He says, You foolish person. You foolish person. If you would have just waited a tiny bit, you would have had everything, everything that you wanted to eat. Uh, this is obviously a story that Rabbi Nachman tells. The story is called Maisami Mara. Uh, it, appears in, uh, it appears in a number of wrestling traditions. Um, and, uh, and one of the elaborations upon the story says, that not only is this a story where the nimshal, where the understanding of the parable and the story is quite clear about what it means to wait through suffering or, or to wait through when something is difficult in order to see that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. But, it's, uh, but uh, one of the uh, elaborations in this story says that this is also what happens when we approach Rabbi Nachman. 
that a lot of times we can approach his Torah, his stories, and they can be quite opaque and they can be quite bitter in terms of our desire to understand. And the idea is to wait, the idea is to persevere and then to be able to go ahead and to, to eat whatever we want, to be able to take whatever we want uh, and to extract meaning uh, from, uh, from Rabbi Nachman's Torah and from Rabbi Nachman as a person. And, uh, and that's going to be the goal. I thought it was uh, nice to begin with the story. That's going to be the goal of our learning of Rabbi Nachman's stories, which we mentioned, which we said that uh, I think it's my understanding now that of all the um, iterations of Rabbi Nachman's Torah, I think that perhaps the most uh, original of a person who's, who's known for his original way of teaching Torah, uh, still to this very day, uh, one of the most original and one of the most dynamic ways in which Rabbi Nachman communicates his Torah is through these stories, of which he was absolutely sui generis, totally unique uh, in the annals of Hasidus and, and uh, really throughout the Jewish people, all of Jewish literature, in, uh, in what he's doing with his stories. And we're going to be studying for the next couple of weeks, Mir Tzashem, uh, the stories of Rinachman Abrasov. I want to tell another story uh, because that's what we're doing over here. Uh, the other story uh, concerns Rzalman Shakin. Rzalman Shakin uh, was born in 1879, dies in 1959. Uh, he's famous for founding the Shakin Publishing House, uh, also for founding and for the uh, ownership and stewardship of the Haaretz newspaper. And, um, and he's also uh, just as well known for being the main patron of one Shai Agnon. Um, and uh, very central. He was not a, a writer in his, in his not, a, not a literary figure uh, in his own right, by dint of his own writing, although we do have letters from him and, uh, and memoirs that are going to be relevant in a second, you'll see, uh, but as an absolutely central figure in the renaissance of Jewish literature and Jewish creativity, Hebrew creativity, um, that, uh, that continued into the founding of, uh, of the new state of Israel. Uh, in his youth, Shakin was enamored uh, with German culture and literature and poetry and had totally thrown himself into it to the point that he writes in one of his early diaries uh, that he never wanted to have anything more totally disconnected from Judaism, from our religion, nothing to do uh, with, uh, with Judaism, totally removed and secular. And then he stumbles across Martin Buber's translation of Rabbi Nachman's stories. And, uh, and to give you uh, the line, this uh, story appears actually in the introduction uh, to a work that we will be revisiting many, many times, which I'm holding here. Kol Sipure Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev. It's an academic, uh, I would say almost a critical edition of Rabbi Nachman's stories produced by Professor Tzvi Mark of Barilan University, one of the great Breslev scholars of our day and age. And, uh, and he writes this in his introduction. I'll, I'll tell you how the story goes. Uh, he introduces, uh, he's introduced to Buber's translation, and he writes in his memoirs, he says, He writes to Buber in a letter, he says, I have uh, been influenced to a great extent by your book on Rabbi Nachman's stories. And he writes, after having read Rabbi Nachman's stories, After that, I've decided to become a real Jew to return to faith. Um, this is a seminal moment in the development of Hebrew literature and Jewish creativity that, would pa- that Shaken would find himself in the midst of uh, because Buber then goes ahead to introduce him to Shai Agnon 
and uh, the rest is history, as they say. And uh, he writes later on, after, uh, after the death of his wife, he gathered his children uh, to speak to them. And this is recorded in the memoirs of his son, Gershom Shakin. And he, uh, and he has two books on his table. One is uh, the works of the philosopher Hegel, and the other is the, uh, the stories of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And he writes, Shektavav ayu p'tuchim al-mikhtavto bizman shediber. Speaking to all of his uh, children, he says that the, these tales were opened in front of them. These tales are opened in front of them. We're an intimate group tonight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, he said, we're just talking about Zalman Shakin, uh, but, uh, but it'll be clear what we're talking about in a moment. Uh, he writes afterwards, and I'm going to quote from here, uh, after, after Zalman Shakin's death, his son, Gershom Shakin, is masbid him, eulogizes him, and says the following. He says, Shneit muyot alavi. Two figures that influenced my father greatly, Ubehem Asak that he dealt with in the in the early stage of his life, and from that point where he discovered them, they filled his life until the very end of his days. So the first that he writes, uh, Gershom Shakin says the first was of course Shai Agnon, and the second was Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev. Aviv he says that his father Asakbo Behavsakot Kimavan dealt with and was involved with, with interruptions, of course, for about 50 years plus, after that fateful time that he encountered the works of Martin Buber in translating Rabbi Nachman's stories. And it was through the stories of Rabbi Nachman, that's amazing, through the stories, I think, through the stories of Rabbi Nachman Mivresl of Zalman Shakin, who had traveled and had been mitayel uh, in the fields of secularism and of secular literature that had returned him to his, to his own nation, to the Jewish people. Uh, Did the, he become Shakin publisher? That is exactly right. This is Zalman Shakin, the founder of Shakin Publishing House. In fact, because of Zalman Shakin's engagement with the writings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, uh, we now have one of the largest uh, archives of Breslov literature that Svimark says were instrumental, really, for any scholar studying Rabbi Nachman, uh, especially his stories. Uh, Zal- Zalman Shakin, for the rest of his life, gathered, uh, bought, and, uh, and collected uh, Kitve Yad, manuscripts of some of the earliest Breslov writings, uh, original manuscripts of Rav Nachman's Talmud, Rav Natan of Nemerov, and uh, the Shakin Archive contains one of the largest repositories. Uh, Shakin Archive nowadays contains one of the largest repositories of Breslov manuscripts. Uh, that came from, uh, that, which is still being used nowadays, for example, to produce this. A really, truly beautiful uh, book. Kol Sifrei, Rabbi Na- Kol Sipurei Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev. All of the stories of Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev. Just to continue a little bit more on, on this story of Zalman Shakin, uh, we find that uh, he wrote letters to his children at the end of his own life. Uh, so Zaman Shakin uh, writes one of his letters says Shuv v'shuv ani Rabbi Nachman. Again and again, I find myself blown away by this Rabbi Nachman fellow. Tirani is another letter which says Theosophy. At the time of my death, he writes. He says that at the end of the day. He says, At the end of the day, Rabbi Nachman was the great chiddush, the great novelty of my entire lifetime. 
at the end of his life, uh, he was in. Uh, he would spend his. Uh, he would spend his time convalescing in in uh, in Schweiz, in Switzerland. And the story goes the following: Gershom uh, Shachrin reports Baboker. In the morning, Hadelet Loaita Nuula, the door to Zalman Shachrin's room was not locked. And in the morning, when the waiter came into his room, Matzad Gufatoshal Zalman Shruabikise, he found the body of Zalman Shachrin slumped over in the chair. Who made Kishayadolo Fatot Bekoach et Achelek Hasheni Shel Faust vet Sipure Rabbi Nachman Rebreslev? And in his hands he found, in Zalman Shakin's hands, he found the second part of Faust, and he also found the stories of Rabbi Nachman Rebreslev uh, in his arms. And the question is, is why am I telling you this story? It's the second story that we've told already. Why do we care? Uh, it's nice, it's an interesting uh, historical anecdote, but why exactly uh, do we care about uh, this story of Rabbi Nachman, of, uh, of Zalman Shachin, and his, uh, his being enamored of the writings of Rabbi Nachman? So Zalman Shachin dies in uh, 1959. 1959. Uh, his, uh, I think his grandson or great-grandson is Amos Shachin, the current publisher of Haaretz. Um, newspaper, which, which his grandfather or great-grandfather started. So why is this important? First of all, it's important to, uh, to, the, to the reason that we're telling stories, to the reason that we're studying Rabbi Nachman's stories. Why spend, time, uh, why spend our time learning, learning about the stories of Rabbi Nachman? Isn't there better Torah to learn? Uh, what I want to go ahead and to say is that Rabbi Nachman uh, tapped into something fundamental that all of us, like Zaman Shakin, have stories people that influenced us, people that went ahead and created moments uh, where our lives changed, uh, uh, what we would call regagor ali, a fateful moment in our life. I would say that Rabbi Nachman, in telling his stories, is tapping into this notion that, that there is Torah, and Torah is certainly important to learn in a very shitchi, uh, in, 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 its, in its most common sense. Reading psukim, studying gemarot, the mishnayot, the midrashim, and even learning chasidut and zohar and mysticism, but telling stories where the Torah is not quite evident is something that's far more elemental, something far more fundamental. All of us bring stories. All of us ha- can see our lives as a sequence of events, as a story itself, and by, and by understanding Torah through stories, or by understanding stories through the Torah, we're able to go ahead and to extract something far more personal, far more, uh, far more direct in speaking to our own souls. I'll say like this, I mentioned in Shul, Oftentimes, very fond of quoting the introduction of the Nitziv, of Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, uh, the Rosh Yeshiva of Valazhin, uh, in his introduction to his man- monumental commentary, Davar, on the Torah. He writes, he says, uh, channeling Rashi, he says that the Torah did not need to start except with the first mitzvah. Of course, Moshe, Moshe is, is, is communicating first and foremost to the Jewish people uh, what we are supposed to do for the rest of history, the mitzvot that we're supposed to fulfill and the Averot that we're supposed to stay away from. So what about Sefer Bereshis, the parshiot that we're lucky enough to find ourselves in? And I always love this time of year. I mean, to, we could spend the whole year on Parshas Noah. It's, it's stories. It's stories, and we called in the parlance of Chazal, uh, uh, Sefer Bereshis is called Sefer Hayash. By learning the stories and by studying the stories, the Maase Avot Siman the 
Rabbanim, the, the stories of our ancestors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, and, and all the side figures, the Rishayim, the bad people, the, the Potiphars, and the Nimrods of Sefer Bereshit. By being able to do that, we do something that comes before learning about mitzvah. We do something far more personal, is that we're able to read these stories and incorporate them into our understanding of life. And it says, says that those stories are meant to communicate uh, one, thing for, one thing above all else, which is how to be yasher how to be a good person, how to live out the story of our own life, that derech eretz, the common way of the world, that's kadma Torah, that comes before Torah. So it's interesting, you mentioned, and it is in common parlance, that Rabbi Nachman did tell many stories at the end of his life, that perhaps Rabbi Nachman sensed that uh, the order should be switched, that really the stories should precede the Torah, that the stories should be the things that inform the way in which we, we learn and we read the Torah, and that's exactly what I intend to do uh, by, by teaching, hopefully, by learning together, actually, the stories of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov to show how they are Torah and how the Torah is stories and, 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 and primarily how to incorporate that into our own lives. Just before we jump into things, uh, what is the influence of Rabbi Nachman's stories? So just to, just to toss out, a, just to name drop a few names, the influence of Rabbi Nachman's stories, the stories themselves, are monumental, uh, are, are, are inestimable. Uh, it can't be overstated in the development of Yiddish literature uh, and, and Hebrew literature that blossomed at the fin de siècle, at the beginning, uh, at the turn of the previous century. Just a few authors that uh, we know were directly influenced by Rabbi Nachman's stories as they were translated into various different forms. I say translate because um, while we're certain that the stories were told in Yiddish, What's not quite clear is when they were first written, whether or not they were first written in Hebrew or in Yiddish. Something we'll return to in a moment, just an important bibliographical point. Uh, but just some authors that were directly inferenced. We have the Dernister, Der uh, Ansky, Isaac Bashevis Singer, the Safrut of the Haskalah, even the people that tried to mock uh, Hasidic stories and Hasidic writing in the Hasidim. For example, uh, uh, Yosef Pearl, uh, who authored a book called Megala Tamirin, which was even a, a parody meant to go ahead and assail and show the ridiculousness of Hasidut. Uh, a great scholar nowadays, Professor Yonatan Meir, uh, I think is one of the greatest scholars, uh, uh, Judaic scholars of our day, uh, who, who's done extensive work on, on Pearl. Uh, it's, it's quite clear that he is consciously and directly cribbing off of Rabbi Nachman's Supurim Aisut, even imitating certain literary tics that we could find in Rabbi Nachman's stories themselves. All of these people, uh, even the Haskalah literature that meant to assail Hasidut, is drawing off of Rabbi Nachman's stories, which form an important channel between the world of Hasidim and their culture and the internal culture of Hasidut and what was happening in the outside world in the Haskalah and in, uh, and in the world beyond uh, Hasidim. Furthermore, it's, uh, it's important to, to say that uh, we can start uh, from the very beginning. And, uh, and, and I asked why tell stories and why focus on the stories and, uh, and what exactly might be our main goal over here. So we're not here strictly for an intellectual pursuit. We're not here strictly to go ahead and gather information and to listen to me drop names of Yiddish writers that I read you know, a, a day or two ago in the academic work that I'm not so familiar with their writings, to be perfectly honest with you. I always like integrity and shiurim uh, rather than pretending that I know something. But, but I, I want to start from the very beginning and, and hopefully... Uh, the koteret, uh, the, the operative function of, of our learning should be the following. When we, especially in the coming weeks, when we go ahead and we actually read the stories together, uh, selections from them, is the following. In the first printing of Sipure Maasiot, uh, which were uh, written and published by Rabbi Nachman's main Talmud, Rav Nassim of Nemerov, uh, so 
the following koteret, the following uh, line appears at the beginning, and this is printed in Ostrog in 1815. And this is uh, this, this uh, old-looking font on the top. He says, Anav Amar. So Rabbeinu, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov said, And perhaps Rabbi Nachman is giving us a tip of the hat to say, all these stories that we're going to be reading, what's the point of all this? That when you hear them, and when you internalize them, and when you think about them, and study them, and allow it to have an effect on you, the main goal over here is to have perhaps a hirhur tshuva, a thought of repentance, a thought of self-improvement, a thought of coming closer to God. And, and I would say that that's any tzaddik, especially Rabbi Nachman, that's their project. The project is to bring us closer to God. The project is not just to go ahead, of course, to simply tell stories, but it's to go ahead and to, uh, and to awaken us to something, which is why Rabbi Nassim said about Rabbi Nachman's stories, or quoting his Rebbe, he says, many people go ahead and tell their, uh, tell their children or tell others stories in order to put them asleep. And the reason that we're telling stories is to wake us up. And the awakening that's happening over here is the only kind of awakening that really matters as a Jew is the Torah is uh, is an, an arousal, is an awakening to return to our Creator, to bring us closer to God, to bring us closer to that which is transcendent in this world. And um, and I want to I, I want to read over uh, a quick uh, a quick piece that you have uh, the prelude from Sichos Haran, which we, uh, Sichos Haran, we've, we've learned from in the past. Uh, this comes from Simon Kuf Lamed Chet, certainly not a, uh, uh, certainly not a, um, not a chance number, uh, right? Kuf Lamed Chet, uh, of course, we, we learned about the Ramchal last year. One of the Ramchal's famous works that we touched upon uh, is his systematic exposition of the Kabbalah, Klach Pitre Chachma, number 138, I would say, is, is not, uh, nothing's, uh, nothing's happenstance. But he writes like this, Shamati mi piva kadush, Rav Nassim says about his Rebbe, he says, Shamati mi piva kadush be'et shediber imanu mi godel ha'inyan, when he was speaking to us about the importance, shall sipurei ma'asiyot, the importance of telling tales and stories of the righteous that are printed in his Sfarim. It's a reference over here to Likute Moharan. And he says, Again, trying, each thing that we're going to do is, is going to try and reveal a little bit of a key to unlocking the great puzzle of Rabbi Nachman's stories, which is certainly how they first appear. That's the bitterness, perhaps, that we talked about in the Maasa Mimara at the outset of, this, uh, of, this, uh, of, of our learning tonight. But Rabbi Nachman himself says that his main hitorurut, his main awakening, was through his own hearing of the stories of Tzadikim. So it makes sense that an individual who is himself aroused and awakened to serve God through the hearing of stories and through the telling of stories that he himself would later on realize that this is the way that I want to reach other people and is reaching us is by telling stories. And he told us and he tells a story. In the house of his mother and father may the memory be blessed. All of the righteous people of the time would come. Many of the great early Hasidic tzaddikim would pass through the town of Mezbush, which is, of course, uh, the domicile for many years uh, and the main place of, of Hasidic activity of Rabbi Nachman's great-grandfather, the Baal Shem Tov. 
and they would come through Machmut Shumakum Abal Shentu Zichron Levracha. The Rubam Kekulam Yitachsenu Beveis Aviv Zichron Levracha. And many of these righteous individuals who would pass through Mezhbush and would stay at this parent's house, Veshama Harbi Maasiot Mitzadikim, and he would hear many stories of Tzadikim. And through this was Rabbi Nachman's great awakening to himself and to his able to achieve and merit that which he merited, which I would aver at the very outset of our shiurim is the telling of stories, the ability to communicate Torah ideas, the ability to awaken other people through the telling of his own stories, which were utterly unique, as we mentioned previously. And we're going to return uh, to, to this, uh, to Simon Kuflam and Ches and Sichos Ran, but I, I, I do want to, I do want to dive right into it, if that's uh, okay. And, uh, and diving right into it means another introduction. And the other introduction is source number one over here. I tried consciously not to put too many sources over here because I, wanna, I want our learning to be something where we could go ahead and, and, and focus ourselves rather than be overloaded uh, with, with all kinds. There's so many sources, so many different things to say about these stories, but I want to try and draw out the Iker. Yehuda Ya'ari, was an author, uh, a playwright, and a translator of the third Aliyah. He was Zochet to the Shishkin Prize and the Brenner Prize. He's a very celebrated Israeli literary figure. He published a book called Sipure Maasiot Mishanim Kadmoniot Shesipe Rabbeinu Nachma Mibreslav. And he authored and penned two introductions to the book. And he says something that I think is remarkably prescient. And, uh, and important for our purposes as we dive into the stories of Rabbi Nachman as well. And as we rev up, we have to pause for a moment and listen to what he says. Ya'ari writes the following, source number one. Somebody that's going to tell the Sipure Maasios, the stories of Rabbi Nachman, which is us. And doesn't tell the story of the man himself and his life so it's tantamount to an individual that says, come, I want to show you a beautiful park, a, a, a place of wonder, and, 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 and doesn't, doesn't initially go to find the Ganan, the person who's in charge of the park. We're going to return to a Ganan at the end of the shir today, and doesn't ask the person who's in charge of the place to show them around. You wander aimlessly without knowing the proper path. Because the man and his life story is the greatest interpretation, the greatest parish of the stories that we're going to learn. That he told. And just as his stories are, he, he writes over here, the loftiest interpretation of the man, Rabbi Nachman, himself. We see a kind of reflexivity. In order to understand the stories, we have to understand Rabbi Nachman. And in order to understand Rabbi Nachman, we have to understand the stories. And that kind of reflexive reciprocality here in, in what we're trying to do in interpreting the stories. One of the great lofty figures of our nation, one of the Jewish people's great spiritual figures, flowing river, source of wisdom. Now, we have to pause for a second. What's uh, You can't say it almost without singing the, the, the Breslov song, right? So that, though, the words over here are taken from Mishle. Uh, the, the full Pasuk in Mishle is instructive. Everything here is instructive layers. 
So the Pasuk is Mayim Amuchim Divrei Piish Nachal Naveim Akor Chachma The deep waters are the words of, of an Ish, the words of a person, the words over here we're understanding the spiritual leader. Those are, are deep, deep waters. Nachal Naveim Akor Chachma A flowing river, source of wisdom. And that's actually Nachal Naveim Akor Chachma is Notrikan is Roshe Tevot or the acronym of Nachman, of Rabbi Nachman's name. And, uh, and in all of Breslov literature, it is a, 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 a flowing reference to Rabbi Nachman. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in, many, in, in much of Breslov literature, saying Nachman Chachma is a reference to Rabbeinu, is a reference to our teacher, Rabbi Nachman. Sipurei Masiot, Mashal, the Sipurei Masiot, the stories that we're going to learn are the Mashal, are the parable, Va'ish Sipro Tamhua Nimshal. And the man who said over the stories is the Nimshal, is the understanding of the parable. So the mashal, the parable, explains the nimshal, Rabbi Nachman himself, and Rabbi Nachman himself illuminates the mashal, the parable. So Rabbi Nachman is inextricably tied up in his stories, and I, and I believe that this is a muskam, that this is a well-agreed-upon idea, that even no matter how opaque, and no matter how difficult the mifultal and, and weaving the stories are, that we can understand that, that really underneath it all is Rabbi Nachman himself. So... Who was Rabbi Nachman? I know that we spent a number of shirim and we've done this, but it's worth spending a few minutes just giving a thumbnail sketch of Rabbi Nachman's life in order to know who's the man, uh, who's the person telling the stories. Rabbi Nachman was born in 1772, as we mentioned, the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov in Mezhbush, and um, he marries at 13, gains his first chassid on the day of his marriage uh, in 1798. He begins to grow in popularity. One of the amazing things about Rabbi Nachman's life story is that uh, we're told that the period of his life after his wedding is when he was most successful in a traditional Hasidic sense. Uh, it says apparently that none of his, uh, he didn't have any financial needs at the time. He was taking care of people. had started to send pidionos and, uh, and he was doing uh, quite well in medvit med. Medvedivka, I can never pronounce it right, which is where he had gone to move with his father-in-law's family, was supported and began to gain popularity. And then, of course, Rabbi Nachman did a very Rabbi Nachman thing where he went ahead and said, okay, enough, I'm traveling to Eretz Yisrael. And we've spent some time talking about that trip to Eretz Yisrael. 1798 and 1799, Rabbi Nachman undergoes an absolutely epic journey to the land of Israel at at, at, uh, considerable risk to his own life, nearly loses it a number of times along that journey journey uh, and uh, comes back to Zlatopol uh, where he encounters fierce opposition. Then he moves himself to Breslov. Uh, when he lives in Breslov, he once again begins to settle himself and begins to develop what would be traditionally called the Hasidic court until there's a fire uh, that burns down his base medrash. And, and Dari Nachman suffers throughout his life. He loses children. Uh, he had six children, uh, 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 two of whom died in infancy. Uh, Rabbi Nachman suffers throughout his life and not to mention the tremendous opposition that people had to a great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov who could have easily chosen a traditional path of, uh, of tzaddikut, of tzaddikism, and goes and does, uh, and, and is completely, uh, completely goes off the rails of what one might expect somebody who has his life basically planned out for him had he chosen to become a traditional tzaddik. Now he moves to Uman after the fire, and in Uman, he lives for about six months and dies at age 38. Yud Ches Tishrei, Taf Kuf Ayin Aleph, 1810. Uh, so in 38 years, Rabbi Nachman manages to do all of this. So that's the person. That's Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev. Now we can move on to Sipuri Mas. He left no children. 
uh, no, a, a daughter, I believe. I have over here in my Wait, notes. I think my understanding is there was no one to carry on his tradition. Rabbi Nachman and Sasha had six daughters and two sons. Two daughters died in infancy and two sons passed away at very young ages. Their surviving children were Adol, Sarah, Miriam, and Chaya. So four daughters uh, that survived, um, although, uh, although no successor is Rabbi. His main successor was his Talmud, uh, who basically wrote down and elaborated upon everything Rabbi Nachman wrote and said throughout his lifetime, which was Rav of Nemerov. Rav of Nemerov, of course, put Sipure Maasios, the stories, into writing. And uh, Rav Nassan uh, uh, authored a massive elaboration of Inachman's uh, teachings into something called Likute Halachos, which is monumental elaboration of Rav Nachman's teachings in Likute, uh, Likute Moharan. He also authored uh, Likute Tfilot, Likute Eitzot. This is all based on Rav Nachman's Torah, uh, not to mention a vast array of oral traditions that were passed down from Rav Nachman's life that basically... Uh, I said to somebody, it's almost like uh, Rabbi Nachman, who is so concerned, uh, I think, about... Uh, I say so concerned. that It's not, not that way. But Rabbi Nachman, who was... Who, who was who thought about his legacy, wrote about his legacy, and what he would communicate to him. Almost everything, almost every teaching has been committed to writing, preserved for posterity, and preserved uh, for our generation to go ahead, and, and that it's still a, uh, an unbelievable movement. It's uh, I'd be remiss if we don't mention tens of thousands of people fulfill Rabbi Nachman's uh, advice to his Tamidim and, and visit Rabbi Nachman's Kevin Uman every single year, uh, and, and it only grows and continues. Uh, so, so Rabbi Nachman's afterlife is, uh, is just as big, as we would say, uh, just as big, just as influential, just as important as what Rabbi taught and did and worked upon during his own lifetime. So about Sipure Maisios, which is going to be what we're, what we're going to be studying. So a few, uh, a few notes. Sipure Maisios proper refers to 13 tales that were told by Rabbi Nachman. And there are other stories that abound throughout, appended to many editions of Sipuri Maisios. Nowadays are Sipuri Maisios Achadashos. Uh, there's a wonderful translation uh, by, uh, by Rav uh, Arya Kaplan. Rav Arya Kaplan translated them into English. It's uh, widely available on Amazon. And he includes some of the Sipuri uh, Maisios, Sipurim Achadashim at the end of it. There's other stories that abound throughout his works themselves. Sicho Saran, Chai Maran, in all these works interspersed throughout are stories that he told during it and of course there's the great story of Rabbi Nachman's life which we spent time on last year uh, the, the great epic story of Rabbi Nachman's journey to the land of Israel which we won't rehash at this moment uh, many of the stories were added on by Rabbi Nachman of Chirin Rabbi Nachman of Chirin was the main Talmud of Rav Nassan and he preserved many of them and, um, and historians, literary critics, folklorists, and of course Hasidim all have seen something in Rabbi Nachman's stories. It means the following. You could look at them and see that we have a totally rare expression of Yiddish prose from the 19th century. You could look at them and you could, and you could analyze them for the, the, the quirks of language that are being deployed over here. How did Jews talk at that time? We could look at it for the literary qualities of these stories and how they fit into the traditions of folklore that different religious traditions express. Or, of course, those who are closest to Rabbi Nachman uh, all saw in them, uh, beyond the stories, deep symbolism that, uh, that mirrored uh, the, the wealth of uh, 
the full gamut of Jewish tradition that Rabbi Nachman had at his fingertips, Kabbalistic motifs, Midrashic motifs that are all buried or hidden throughout the stories, and, and of course in, in, uh, in, in a great expanding breast of literature upon these stories, for example, uh, interpretations of them like the book uh, Rimze Ma'asiot. Uh, so we have, uh, we, have, uh, we have people that read the stories as closely as possible to extract uh, the motifs, to extract the Kabbalistic and the Midrashic motifs that Rabbi Nachman is eliciting throughout his stories. It's not all good, though. Simon Dovnov, the great, uh, uh, I say the great, even though he's going to say something truly, uh, truly ugly, I think, in my, in my interpretation. Not everybody saw in the stories uh, something monumental or something beautiful. Uh, Dovnov writes in 1931, he says, and I apologize for saying this, but, uh, but it's important to understand what exactly we're doing this in relief of. Dubnov writes, he says, All the stories of Rabbi Nachman, according to my knowledge, All of these stories, he says, are the ramblings, incoherent ramblings of a man in the throes of his final illness of tuberculosis. And for naught have all of the new scholars trod in the paths of Breslov Hasidim to extract meaning uh, to see some sort of a, a germ of an idea in all of these stories. Now, I would say Afra Lepume, that's a, a, a horrible thing to say, and I think also uh, I think widely agreed upon that it's also wrong uh, on, on, on every merit, but what I think that it does reflect is, is something that I felt the first time that I was nechsaf, the first time that I read the stories, is that they are notoriously difficult to read. The way Rabbi Nachman tells the stories, um, you know, in, in one that we'll see in a moment, he has to explain himself, he has to remind us who we're talking about. Meaning is not, is not readily apparent. Uh, what exactly are we even doing reading the stories? Where's the payoff from the story is not readily apparent. The Masami Mara that we talked about, the shorter story, has an easy nimshal, an easy understanding of the parable, but... But, but, but many of the stories, especially in the 13, uh, the 13 main stories, which are the longer stories, it's very, very difficult to go ahead and extract me. I'm reminded of, uh, I'm reminded of being a young English major and, uh, and, and taking the big survey classes where all the other students would be and say, wait, we could do whatever we want this story? What does this even mean? Reading poetry for the first time. What is ars poetica? What exactly are we supposed to do? You could do anything with this. It doesn't mean anything. And when it doesn't mean, or it means everything. And if it means everything, it could also mean nothing. So I want to go ahead and, uh, and put this little disclaimer. Many of the stories uh, we will not be reading uh, generally from the 13 main stories. It's, 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 uh, I think they're too long for our purposes, and I'm not good enough to go ahead and to hold on. I'm not good enough even here to hold on to people's attention for it. I would encourage people to read them with an open mind and an open heart, which is the way all great literature should be approached. But I will say the following thing that I heard in a, uh, in a, uh, in a class given by William Kolbrenner. Uh, Dr. William Kolbrenner, uh, who, who, who's a professor of English literature at Bar-Ilan University. I think he's spoken at the Shul in the past. Uh, and he, he said something I think is a great line that helps inform how we approach these stories. He wrote, uh, and it's instructive for, for the, rest of our, uh, the rest of our work. He wrote, he said, interpretation does not simply elicit meaning, it creates it. And he further elaborated on Twitter, and he said something, I think it's genius. Um, he, he further elaborated, he said, and, and oftentimes 
great interpretation is tantamount to the act of creativity itself. Is at the close, they become closely aligned. That when we interpret and, of course, criticize and, and dive into a story and look for the motifs, the symbols, the understanding, uh, what exactly an author or a storyteller is trying to communicate to us. So, so the creation of the story, the creation of that literature is closely aligned with the interpretive act as well. And they become enmeshed one another. So I would, I would ask that we approach these stories with, with that kind of open heart. And with that... Yeah. A French poet, I think Berlin, who attended a lecture at the Sorbonne, the professor was talking about his poem. Mm. He's sitting in the back, and the professor is explaining what it's meant, and he listens and he says, gee, I never realized that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, right? So that's, uh, I forgot who it was, uh, uh, Bart or Bakhtin, one of the... Uh, one of the, the great literary scholars talks about this concept of the death of the author. Um, the death of the author in secular literature means that like uh, once, a, once a work is committed to writing and once a work is, a literary work is put out there, so now it's time for the readers to pick it up and a million different people are going to read a story a million different ways. I would say that because Reinachman's stories, I would argue, have a, an important didactic message, which is what we said, to awaken us and, and to serve a religious purpose. So, so I think we would eschew the death of the author. I think the author, as we mentioned, is very much alive in what we're reading over here, but certainly it's a point that's, that's very well taken about the act and the art of interpretation, what we do when, 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 we, when we believe, when we believe in the value of, of, of a of work of literature, of something that's being given over to us. In so, general, yeah. a, a, like a question about what's, what's more valuable, the intent of the author or the understanding of the reader? I, I, I'm just out of curiosity, what would you say? What would you say? Why is that? Because that tells me a little bit about myself and about, meaning it gives me more information than somebody else's. So I agree with you 100%, and, and, and I, would, I would say maybe the, the greatest genius in these stories, something that hopefully if I, I tr- I'll try to elicit uh, in these classes, is that, is that, um, is that when we interpret that Rabbi, that Rabbi Nachman in telling these stories and our act of reading them and learning something about ourselves is exactly the point. Uh, that Rabbi Nachman had in mind when he was telling them in the first place. That's 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 an important point that I want to argue over here. So with that in with that in mind, uh, so let's jump into the longest of the of the thirteen stories uh, and uh, one of the most well known of the thirteen stories, which is the story of the seven beggars. Uh, and uh, it's it's. Uh, in, in most editions of Sipur Masyot, it runs something like 25 printed pages, and, uh, and it has an introduction, and then uh, it talks about uh, subsequent days. Um, what's amazing about Rabbi Nachman's stories that, uh, that I think that is one of the great innovations of them is that, as Rabbi Nachman told us, stories are not something new. Hasidim told stories to each other all the time. And the difference is, and this is a big difference, is that the stories that were told in Hasidus were stories about Sadiqim. When we encounter Sipure Maisios, it's a story, it's stories by a Tzadik. And when you read the stories, there's actually, especially in the 13 stories printed in Sipure Maisios, nothing, nothing exclusively Jewish jumps out at you. Um, the Rabbi Nachman is reported to have said that he, he freely admitted that they were borrowed and elaborated upon Ukrainian folk tales and that they were freely borrowed upon them. Stories Rabbi Nachman might have heard on his trip to Lvov to try and receive an unsuccessful, an unsuccessful medical treatment. 
for the illness that would take his life. Uh, but Rabbi Nachman consciously borrowed from the folklore and the stories of the culture around him, the secular culture, and reified them and, told, and used them for his own purposes. The characters of these stories, many of which would fall into the category of fantasy or folk tales. Uh, we have beggars and we have, uh, we have uh, kings and princes and queens and, and, uh, and children and, and, and everything in between. Now, none of them are explicitly Jewish. None of them are explicitly, obviously, um, obviously uh, something that you would assume a tzaddik would be talking about. And, and yet here they are, which is totally unique, totally sui generis, right? A lot of the stories that we would hear, oh, this tzaddik did this amazing miracle. Rabbi Nachman is a tzaddik telling the stories, not a tzaddik of whom the stories are being told about, even though we have plenty of tzaddik stories about Rabbi Nachman. So the story I want to I start with is a piece from day two of the story of the seven beggars, which appears in Sipurei Maasiot. And, and uh, you don't need to know the context of, of this particular segment, but let's read it inside. So source number two. Rabbi Nachman says, There was this country that had a gun. So once again, we find, uh, find the, the, a park or we find uh, an orchard or a field. And inside that garden were fruits. And these fruits had all of the tastes in the world. It had all the scents and smells and subtle sounds of the world. And there were all kinds of wondrous things to see. All of the flowers, all this verdant, lush, uh, lush surroundings. Everything was there in that garden. Now, of course, the interpretive work over here, I, hopefully your gears are already turning if you're reading it, because what is a gun with all kinds of things in it? It could even hark back immediately. Our minds would associate it with Gan Eden. We just read about last week. Or, or, I'm thinking of the Pardes, you know. So you see, we're, we're already two levels of interpretation that just ju- jump out at us right now. That's exactly the way that we're supposed to be looking at these stories, uh, understanding and, and coming with the assumption that there are, are deep levels of instruction and, 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 uh, and teaching that are contained within somebody talking about a garden that has beautiful fruits and vegetables in it. And he says, ganani echad agardenik. So there was a gardener. There was a person who was appointed to watch over the garden. And the people living in that country lived a good life right near this garden. And the gardener went missing. And all of this beautiful, lush, verdant landscape because the gardener was gone, started to decay, started to deteriorate. <laughs> because the memuna, the person appointed to watch over it, this gardener was no longer there. And the people, nevertheless, were able to live off of the remnants, right? The bushes and that which was, was left in this garden, even in its, even in its state of disrepair. Ubale a Melech Asar and a wicked king came, Alosa Medina, to that country, Vilay Yachal Asos Lahem Davar, and he couldn't do anything to them. Vahalach Vakilkil Asachayim Tovim Shalam Medina, Shai Lahem in Agan. He went ahead and he destroyed this beautiful, idyllic life that the people in this country had uh, on, on the side of this garden. 
He didn't go ahead and destroy the garden. He left three levels. He organized three levels of, of servants and slaves. That they should do what he says. So what he did, he didn't just go ahead and destroy the garden. He left the garden. But all the time, all the taste, all the enjoyment, all the benefit that came from this garden was ended up becoming um, decayed. That when you would taste from these beautiful fruits, rather than enjoy the taste, it would be the taste of death. It would be the taste of decay. It would be dulled and numbed. The same thing happened with the beautiful scents. Everything tasted and smelled like galbanum. Terrible. And the sights, everything became gray. You could see a world that starts to go from beautiful color into grayscale. As if everybody's eyes were covered with a thick haze, a thick fog, a thick smoke. And Rabbi Nachman continues to tell in subsequent paragraphs how the beautiful, idyllic life of this mythical country, how this king had totally ruined everything. The world became numb, the tastes taken away, the, um, the, the sights clouded over, a world that was falling into disrepair. Sounds a little familiar to me. Later on he continues and he says that the people in the country decided to take matters into their own hand and to try and restore this idyllic state with which they had uh, been blessed with before. Ve'asukain. And by the way, this story is a story being told within the story by the second beggar, by the deaf beggar. Right? So there's, there's actually multiple layers of storytelling going on here. We have Rabbi Nachman telling the story of the seven beggars. We have these two orphan children that are hearing fr- the story from the second beggar that they meet. And he's telling them this story about this country which he came from, this country with the beautiful garden. And the Asu came. And the people decided to take back their world. And they started to repair this country from the three things that had brought it down. And they would search for the interlopers, the people brought in to ruin their life, the people that were brought in to be nifkad by this wicked king, this cruel king. Till they're able to identify their wicked overseers, the people who had ruined the taste, who had ruined the smells, who had ruined the sights, who had ruined this idyllic landscape. And they started to go ahead and to claw their way back to the ideal state with which they had found themselves in at the beginning of the story. And they, and they started to be metakin the Medina, to rectify it. And through all this work of rectification, there was a great bruhaha, great, uh, a great clamor. And they looked at a particular individual that they had assumed initially was one of the people who was Nifgad, one of these, one of these people that the king had caused to ruin their life, this, uh, who, who seemed crazy to them, Meshuga. He's telling everybody, I'm the gardener. I'm the Ganani. And everybody thought he was just simply crazy. And they threw upon him stones and tried to chase him out. Could it be, after all this time, that this is indeed the gardener that was responsible 
for the garden that sustained our life, that gave Tam, that gave Reach, that gave Mara, that illuminated our lives? Could it be? The and they brought him for them. Rabbi Nachman says, in front of those who were rectifying the country and fixing their situation. And the deaf man, the deaf beggar who's, who's revealing this story to them says, I was there as well. He was there too, the Amarti, and he said, For sure, this is the gardener. And they went ahead and they were able to fix the country and to restore it to its, to its primal, to its idyllic state. Now I would argue, based on our, on, our, on our large interpretation and context, who's the Ganani? Who are we referring to? It's none other than Rabbi Nachman himself. And just to give a very quick cursory interpretation story, the Gan refers to the ideal state of things. And the Kabbalistic state, uh, uh, the Kabbalistic iteration of this is that the world was full of light. The world was perfect and it was shattered. And the world into, fell into a state of disrepair. What's upon us is to go ahead and to restore that world, to be metakin, to go ahead and to fix and, to, and that all of the tastes and all the smells and all of the enjoyment of this world, the true enjoyment is something that has been lost, that we're trying to restore. And the Ganani or the tzaddik is the person that instructs us and helps us to restore it if only we identify them. And certainly Rabbi Nachman, who, as we mentioned, underwent a tremendous amount of redifos. Rabbi Nachman writes that the tzaddik emes is somebody that does have redifos. The true tzaddik is, is to be known by the, by the amount of hitnagdut, the amount of, of opposition to what they're trying to do, is perhaps referring to himself. So why did Rabbi Nachman tell stories? And here we finish our learning for tonight. So Rav, Rav Nassan, Nassan, uh, owing to a teaching of Rabbi Nachman that says that it's not just enough to learn, it's not just enough to learn Torah, but we have to turn the Torah into tefillah. We have to turn the Torah into prayer. And then we have to turn the prayer into actionable ideas, into etzos, into ideas. So distilled many of his Rebbe's teachings, many of the master's teachings into one of his main works called Likute Eitzot. And it's organized, uh, it's a lexicon of sorts, it's organized according to Erech. And this falls under the Erech, the entry of Tzaddik. And I think that this is what allows me to interpret as quickly as we did uh, who the Ganani is. He writes the following. First about stories. Tzadi Aleph. Source number two. So we, we finish where we began, through telling stories of tzaddikim, or in our case, telling stories told by tzaddikim. So we're able to arouse our hearts, to awaken our hearts, that we can feel closer, with a sense of vigor, to rekindle our relationship with God. And he says, how many tzaddikim told us that their main awakening came from hearing stories of the tzaddikim, came from hearing stories of the greats and wanting to go ahead and to say, as all of us should say, until when will my actions, until when will my life approximate the telling of the story of the life of the great tzaddikim, the righteous men and women of our nation. Where, where will I go ahead and align my life with them? Where will my actions go ahead and be their own story that people will tell about me? What kind of stories are they going to tell about me? What kind of story does my life lead? What kind of, what kind of a narrative am I weaving by my actions here? 
This ignited their hearts for Hashem. Now, of course, Rabbi Nachman himself said this about himself, but this is in a much more broader sense, this is all of us. And he says in the next one, there is a celestial garden, a field. There is a field out, out here in the fields. A lofty field, the field of souls. And all of these souls, all of us, where our souls come from, we need a a master of the field. One might say, a ganani echad. One might say, as we started off with, one might say that we need somebody that's going to go ahead and give us the hirhure tshuva. Right? This individual, ganani echad, the bala sadeshi yasuk betikunam, who's going to assist them in rectifying their souls. Just like the story in the second day of the, second, of the seven beggars. And anybody that wants to have mercy on themselves, on their own soul, to daven and to beg God Almighty. Can we just get closer to the person that will lead us through the fields, the person that will lead us, that will elevate us in these fields, perhaps restore the peros and the sense and sounds and, and life force to these fields. This tzaddik looks for everybody and tries to bring them towards their main purpose. Shukula tov kulo echad, which is all good and all one. And what I think this means is that I think a lot of us have found an individual, and maybe it's a maybe it's a, a complex of individuals, a construct of individuals that have guided us along our lives. That we could point to a conversation, whether it's a parent, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a child, whether it's a friend, whether it's a, a hopefully a rabbi or or some other teacher of Torah that has assisted us and allowed our stories to develop, and that we found our stories articulated by these people who are all baalei hasade. Masters of the field with which we, we walk through. And he says, Through this tefillah, so we go ahead and bring ourselves closer. I'll finish off by saying that uh, there is a Zohar uh, that appears in Parshas Bereshis that says, uh, based on the Medrash, uh, who took uh, the sun and, and was Nignaz, the main light of the sun, the main light of the Orus HaGidolim was hidden for the Tzadikim and it will only be fully revealed for the righteous at the end of all creation. And that Zohar, I think, is connected to another Zohar which is quoted by Rabbi Nachman which appears in Parshas Pekudeh. And the Zohar riffs along something that we said a few weeks ago that commenced uh, the beginning of the holiest day of our year of Yom Kippur. He said, Or Zarua Latzadik Simcha. Or Zarua Latzadik is that uh, the Zohar says, not just Rabbi Nachman now, that they're in, in, in this field, people are able to harvest from that field, the righteous, righteous men and women that teach others. So, the, so in Or Zarul at Tzadik, that light is sown for the righteous, and for the upright of hearts, there shall be joy, that the Tzadik, that the Baal Hasad is the one who goes ahead and says, even before the times of Mashiach, here there's a little light. Here there's a little light. Let's extract that light. 
Let me show you a little bit of that light. And from when we learn Torah and we're involved in mitzvahs and tefillah and chesed and learning Torah and trying to connect ourselves to, to the righteous by studying their Torah, we're able to reveal a little bit of that light. It's my hope that in the shiurim that, uh, that we have and when we study these stories and extract meaning from them, that we'll be our own tzaddikim, that we'll go ahead and extract that light that's sown in the field or zarua tzaddik, the light that's planted and waiting for us to be able to go ahead and to extract those delicious fruits, the peros and the, 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 the beautiful smells and sights and sounds of that field and we'll be able to go ahead and to illuminate and hopefully better our own lives and that we hopefully will be able to have, as Rabbi Nachman said at the beginning of his tales, just a little hear her tshuva, just a little thought, contemplation, repentance to return and to forge an even closer relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu through the telling of these stories. Thank you all so much for coming.